From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. With college game day drawing eyeballs from across the nation, the Gators battled the Vols last weekend in Knoxville. And while their comeback bid came up an unanswered Hail Mary short, they showed tremendous fight and likely learned a lot about themselves in the process. On today's show, we'll fire up the roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, to discuss the resurgence of Anthony Richardson clear challenges on defense, the impact of Hurricane Ian on this weekend's game against Eastern Washington, the official start of basketball practice, and sporting events destined for the chopping block in the PAT. Then, offensive lineman Austin Barber joins us to talk about being unexpectedly thrust into a starting position, fulfilling his lifelong dream to be a Gator, and much more. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Time for this week's roundtable, which will, of course, feature... Our three experts, FloridaGators.com senior writers, Scott Carter and Chris Harry, and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly. Uh, gentlemen, there's, there's a lot to get to. There's a lot of things we're going to talk about that may not even happen. But before we do that, let's talk about something that did happen that a lot of people saw, which was Florida's trip to Knoxville, which as we sit here and talk about it, I still can't believe Florida was a play away from winning that game. Um, the fact that they were... I think suggests they probably fared better than than many thought they might going into the game. So I'm curious what you took away from a, a very strange game in a lot of ways when you think about the way it played out relative to what could have happened there at the, the finish. Well, I think that we learned a little bit more about this football team. Some good, some not so good. We'll start with the not so good. This is a defense right now that is is averaging, giving up more than 400 yards per game. Now, this week's game against Eastern Washington will help balance some of that out, especially when you look at the, I guess, the work against top 20 teams for most of the schedule thus far. But Anthony Richardson decided to step up and let it rip. And again, we still don't have the full picture on Anthony Richardson, but it was a tremendous start or a step in the right direction, a record-setting step at that, and also a team that uh, seemingly when probably they would have maybe let go of the rope at other times, does not do that. I thought they fought all the way through as uh, played out needing the final play of the game to, to decide the whole thing. Yeah, you know, as Sean's saying, we did, We still haven't seen the whole picture of Anthony Richardson. I kind of left there feeling we, we still haven't seen the whole picture of, of the skaters team. And certainly, I think Billy Napier, I, I think the biggest takeaway I had was I think we saw more of the kind of coach that Billy Napier tends to be in this game than maybe some of the other ones. And a lot of it was situational. 
knowing that uh, you had to keep pace with a high-powered Tennessee offense. And quite frankly, Florida's defense is not built to do that right now, and it showed. So what do you do? You go out and you you go for it on fourth down six different times. You make five of those. Uh, you make it a game uh, any way you can. And, you know, Anthony Richardson did his part. Uh, he looked like the player that they need him to be, they want him to be. But to do that, they, they had to gamble. And I, I just thought it was a, a really uh, interesting insight into Billy Napier, the coach, the guy that we've, we've read about, we've heard about, but not necessarily seen it uh, through the first three games. We saw it in the fourth game, the gambler's approach to the game, but also, you know, the, the analyt- analytics dive that he likes, uh, you know, whether uh, it's going for it on those fourth downs in certain situations on your own end or going for two-point conversions, you know, when you're down 11, uh, he explained percentage you're in your favor. Go ahead and declare your path in. Why wait? So uh, it's, a, it's kind of a, a refreshing uh, approach, but yet Gators lost two and two, and I think this is just kind of what we're going to see, guys. It's going to be some bumps here and there. They'll probably surprise us here and there, but it's definitely a team that's kind of evolving week by week. Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that uh, uh, the Gators aren't in the game without Anthony Richardson. I mean, for what he, what the the the, the criticism that he took the previous two weeks, um, he answered that with a, a a game that he had to have for the Gators to have any chance to even be in the game. Now, having said that, I can make a case that Tennessee helped. Anthony Richardson uh, helped the Gators be in the game by staying in man defense uh, as much as they did. Uh, uh, the, the previous two defenses, USF and two weeks before that, Kentucky did some stuff to confuse him with zones and, and Tennessee play, played a lot of straight up stuff and like and rushed him hard and, and allowed him to maybe escape the pocket a couple times and, and make some plays. But to Scott's point, also, uh, uh, <laughs> scared money don't make money. Um, that we, we saw that from, from Billy Napier and, and he needed, he needed Anthony Richardson to play that game also. What was it? Was it a, was it a fourth and two and you complete and you throw and you go over the top? Was it a 38 yard completion? A great catch by Justin Shorter, which is something we've been, uh, just calling it like it is, uh, Justin Shorter has been a little shorter of, uh, while during his time here. He had a great game last week. Uh, I, I don't think a lot of people talked about the game Justin Shorter had. I think it was seven catches, 155 yards. Um, really, really nice performance by that kid. Uh, so we saw some things offensively from the team that uh, are, is, is to be encouraging, um, uh, specifically from, from the quarterback. Uh, first touchdown passes of the season for the Gators. Uh, difficult place to play. Great environment up there. Uh, Tennessee is the better team. Uh, clearly, and they were at home, but uh, ten and a half point underdogs, biggest point spread. What did Scott say last week? And since the nineteen fifties, uh, for the uh, uh, underdog spread for the Gators, um, played a really, really good game, and uh, nothing to duck your heads about uh, leaving Knoxville. You guys all mentioned that uh, we saw obviously a tremendous performance from Anthony Richardson, but we still don't maybe know for sure what the 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 full book says. Is he young enough to where you think this is still going to be a work in progress and one great performance does not suggest the rest will be great, just as one poor performance doesn't suggest the same fate as well? Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think there's, that's part of the story with Anthony right now at this stage of his career, Adam. I think it's the story with a lot of young quarterbacks. Uh, 
there are going to be growing pains. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the first for Anthony so far. Let's just, let's just break him down like this. That's his fifth career start. Uh, he's had one in the Florida Georgia game, number one. Then he, you've had the first one at home against Utah, a ranked team. And then you had your first conference home start against Kentucky against the ranked team. And then you go on the road to have your first SEC road start. So, you know, he's knocking these first off the list right now early. But with that, I mean, he's faced four ranked teams in his five starts. So the challenge isn't easy for him what he's faced so far. It's not going to get any easier in the SEC. And he's going to have to grow each and every week. I mean, that's been kind of the message from Billy Napier. Look, you know, let's just uh, have fun, go out there, play your game. And I think last week he was he was able to get back to that a little bit. And, uh, you know, Anthony talked about that last week, as we mentioned on the podcast, just connecting back with, you know, family, people who knew him growing up, people here in town. And, hey, man, get back. Just go out there and have some fun and play ball. And to be honest with you, it looked like what we saw a little bit uh, against Utah and even last year some. Uh, his body language was better. And he just, you know, he's out there making some moves, making some throws that we hadn't seen uh, really this season yet. I mean, Chris mentioned the throw to Shorter for 39. That was a great throw. I thought uh, he had a great one early uh, in the game on the zipper play. Zipper's run got a lot of the attention, deservedly so, but – Anthony had to kind of climb the pocket there uh, under some pressure, make that throw. So, so if he can continue to learn and and gain more confidence, again they lost, but I think it was a, a confidence builder for Anthony, and I'm sure one that Napier hopes carries uh, carries him over to the season. I will start with the frame that Chris put around it, and that Tennessee decided to play man for the most part, especially on the edges, obviously. Uh, you know, I thought that in some ways he was inspired or challenged by Hendon Hooker. And I think that he saw Hooker across the way and said, all right, your guys versus my guys, let's go. And it was kind of um, trading punches, if you will, back and forth between the two quarterbacks. I see your number. I'll go after mine. I've got two touchdown passes under my belt. I, I thought he played a lot less careful. And, um, and just went after it and took what he saw. That, and I thought we saw that in the Utah game. It returned against Tennessee. So the other side of this that, that I think everyone mentioned is the defense. And obviously that was what, what let Florida down in this game. Um, and, and as you look at moving forward with the defense and, and the improvements they have to make, you're not going to really learn much from the Eastern Washington game, assuming that does get played on Sunday. Um, bigger picture, what did we see from this defense? Ventro Miller was back. He was very good. Um, but obviously there were issues elsewhere on the field. So what's your sense of where Florida's defense goes from here and, and how they become a better unit? I think that the, the Gators' defense and their lack of depth has been exposed somewhat here in, in these first four games, more so against the SEC opponents that they played. And there was no stopping Tennessee's offense. And, and look, there will be others that will have trouble stopping that offense as we progress through the uh, SEC campaign. So, you know, in that sense, I, I put a little asterisk next to it. But at the same time, the trouble getting off the field was disturbing to me. How many third downs uh, were, you know, were the volunteers able to convert, unable to get off the field in that sense? Now, 
This is also a team, though, that is winning the takeaway battle right now. This is a plus team in the turnover game, and it's, you know, an opportunistic defense in that sense. So they do ball hawk a little bit, and they hit. But at the same time, it, it, is, it is becoming more of an issue uh, in big play situations, whether it's a team that wants to run it right down your throat or Tennessee wants to ramp, or excuse me, spread you out. So in that sense, I think all levels of the defense has been exposed in some way. There's a lot of uh, room for improvement, to say the least. And watching wide receivers run free or wide open is not going to get it done. And I know it has Billy Napier and his staff on edge a bit. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing, there's not a lot to say, Adam, coming out of that game that's really positive about the defense. I mean, Ventro, it was great to see Ventro Miller back out there and getting that call's fumble earlier. Ventrell, you can just tell he he is kind of the heart and soul of the defense. But they just had too many mistakes, as Sean said, too many Tennessee receivers uh, just running wide open. And that's, you know, that's some communication errors. That's some, uh, Chris loves this word, that's some eye discipline errors. You know, you've got to, you've got, it's coach, you know, when coaches mention this stuff during a press conference sometimes, you kind of glaze over because it's such football talk. But guess what? You do have to go out there and do it, and when you don't, well, you see guys running free like we saw uh, a couple of times on Tennessee. Um, and let's let's not sugarcoat it. I mean, they, they've got to beef up the talent on that side of the ball. I mean, you know, and you can look at the players, and they know some of them aren't stepping up. I one tweet that got my attention, you know, yesterday or Sunday was, you know, Jervon Dexter tweeted, I, you know, got to do better, got to improve. And, I mean, it's true because how many times – did we mention or think about Jervon Dexter on, on uh, Saturday? Not many. And that's just – he's just one guy, and he kind of spoke publicly about it on his own social media. But I think there's some cases of guys can play better, but I also think it's it's just kind of a, a young defense that probably is under-talented compared to the offense right now at this stage of Napier's tenure. Uh, and you're going to have to probably outscore some teams this year and get in some shootouts and win that way. Uh, I don't see this being a defense that's going to lock a lot of offenses up, certainly not Hendon Hooker. And, I mean, he was really the, the whole difference in the game, what, 349 yards passing, 112 rushing. And every time they thought they had him, and, boy, a couple of times, you know, Brian or uh, Brenton Cox was right on him. He just made his play and ran free. And uh, that, that's, that just kills a defense when you can't get off the field. And it was third and long situation. Plus, if you're if you're going to be out talented, I mean, you just can't have plays where the wide receiver looks like he's returning a punt and he's standing twenty yards from the nearest defensive player. I think we saw two of those in that game. Just, I mean, just ridiculously blown missed assignments. And and I'm not saying anything that the that the coaches and the players aren't kicking themselves about in these meetings. I mean, I'm sure that they're. They were, they were probably like doing Tom Brady things to iPads on the sidelines, seeing what happened after that. So, you know, there's got to be improvement on – I mean, I don't know how much you can prove personnel at this point. But in terms of discipline and being where you're supposed to be, there are things you can do about that as the season progress. And I've said this, and I know Sean has said this. He and I agreed on this from the very first uh, Gator talk we did. I believe under this coaching staff, especially with this head coach, this is a team that's going to get better as, as the season goes. Um we saw a huge uh, improvement from the quarterback this past week. Hopefully that continues. We don't know if it will. Obviously, there's some huge, really difficult games along the way still to come. But um, 
we'll see where this defense is and where this quarterback is a few weeks down the line might be a better measuring stick of, of, of what these guys are going to be able to do. It's going to be hard to do a lot of measuring when you're playing Eastern Washington. If we're just being honest about it, this is one of those games where, you know, you get a team to come in. The idea is that you beat up on them. Um, Now the circumstances around this game, the circumstances around this game have been challenging because of obviously the hurricane threat. And as we're recording this here on, on Tuesday evening, the game has been moved to Sunday. Um, Scott, what can you tell us about the, the decisions being made here and, and what we expect for this weekend uh, in, in the swamp? Well, a very rare Gators occurrence, a game on a Sunday. I, we were looking it up this afternoon and Last one we could find was the 1977 Sun Bowl wow. against Texas A&M, and the Gators lost, but there was a kicker who set a record that day. Remember the barefooted kicker, Tony Franklin? Had a 62-yard field goal in that game, so a little history there. So obviously the first thing is just, you know, it's a rare and oddity to play on a Sunday. Uh, and, you know, obviously you see, you understand why the, the change was made. I mean, uh, there's a lot of services and a lot of resources that are going to be spent other places uh, after Hurricane Ian passes through. And, you know, Adam, I mean, as we're here, we, we face this situation. I think about this is the fourth time in the last decade uh, where a hurricane has impacted a game. Uh, so it's something that we've gotten used to a little bit. Um but in other years, you know, the game has either been rescheduled down the road or canceled altogether. So it's a little different moving it just one day back. And I think we'll just have to wait in the later in the week to see what this hurricane really does. I mean, if it comes directly through and it, it really does have a big impact and causes a lot of damage and people are without power and stuff of that nature, you know, who knows? It, maybe they're still they maybe have to cancel. Again, I just don't know. But I know that all the P, all the leaders that be, all the all the local and state agencies in the community, uh, university leaders in the community, they've all are keeping a close eye on it. So uh, we'll see. But yeah, just going to be an unusual day at the swamp. And let's not take something for granted here. You, you went into that question, Adam, saying how much are we going to learn from Eastern Washington? Okay, who's to say Eastern Washington is not better than South Florida? And South Florida came into uh, the swamp and gave them quite a scare. With the exception of a win over Howard, I think they, you know, they've been beaten by four or five touchdowns in their in their two games against a, a decent team. So you, they're coming a long way across the country, and uh, the game's pushed back to a weird time. I will say this, as Scott, to Scott's point on Sunday, I'm guessing back in 1977 in the Sun Bowl, the, the Gators weren't going up against a, a, an NFL game, and if, if the game was at night, I'm not sure if it was a day game or at night, but they'll be going against a full plate of early Sunday morning games and one o'clock football games. We'll see how the Gators stack up on internet traffic with that game. And again, by the time you're hearing this, the plan may have changed again. And, and the focus is on the safety of, of fans, of personnel, of everybody in the state of Florida. So again, football is great. It's fun. We love it. It's also secondary to uh, to real life and, and significant issues like this. Yeah. And, and to Scott's point too, that this game, this, this decision is not being made in a vacuum by any means. I mean, the sheer number of people that have to travel a distance to either work the game or first responders, um, those resources have all been taken into account here. I, th- I think it's important that Florida plays this game. Uh, it's at a needed time of the year. I don't think it affects Missouri prep in any way for the homecoming game on October 8th. So I think all positives here, if uh, this does not become an issue with the overall well-being of the state of Florida. 
turning our attention to something we have not really talked about yet this year, but it is time. It is basketball time, sort of. Basketball practice is starting, uh, and that's when Chris Chris's spidey sense starts tingling when that happens. Um, and as we're talking today, Chris, I know you just came from practice, so give us a uh, give us a quick little primer on what's happening over under Todd Golden as he prepares for year number one. Well, just to be to just saying it like it is. I mean, they've been at it for a while with the uh, you know NCA uh, rules allow uh, four hours a week during the off season at certain times. So um, it's not like they've all of a sudden been gathering but first you know two hour practice um it's going to be a little different this year uh, this preseason it, it practices all practices in the preseason are open to the media adam so they'd even let you in if you if you happen to venture to gainesville for a practice sometime um but uh, uh they had a, a media session before with the with three fifth year seniors now i don't know how many fifth year seniors are on a high major team uh, uh, may, maybe more so now, given the with the COVID situation. But that whole COVID situation is is on its it's on its last legs now. So you have three guys that are taking advantage of their COVID year in Colin Castleton, in in Kyle Lofton, and my and Myron Jones, who uh, all of them were, all of them came in and spoke about uh, you know what's go, what's going on with this team. But I think this is a better team than last year, Adam. It's it's just, it's just more talented. There's there's not you know with that with lack of a better phrase there's good players across the board here now some of them aren't going to play because you can't play 13 guys you just can't and even Todd Golden in his in his press conference was asked you know how many guys can you play and he goes well is I think a rotation in the preseason is about nine or ten guys I don't think you can play more than that he goes certainly in the league play you're not probably not going to play more than nine okay well guess what there's 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 four guys that probably aren't going to play What's the, what are the circumstances going to be that, that, that keeps those other guys and who are those other guys going to be? Uh, injuries are probably going to be a factor. Of course they are. Last year, the Florida's best player, Colin Castleton, missed six games with a his, with his shoulder injury. Um, Colin Castleton on the first day of practice, he has not practiced live uh, since he had shoulder surgery. Tuesday was his first practice. He was sensational. Hmm. He, was, he was stepping back and, sh- and making jump shots. He was doing his deal – around the basket. He has a true point guard for the first time since Andrew Nemhard was here. Now, obviously Colin never played with Andrew, but Andrew Nemhard was the last true point guard to play here. Tyree Appleby was not a true point guard. Trey Mann, for as good a player as he was, was not a true point guard. Kyle Lofton is a guy who came from St. Bonaventure. He started, he played 116 games in his career, started all 116 of them. He scored 1,600 points there. He averaged five, uh, over five assists uh, uh, for his career. Um, more than oh, 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 about a steal and a half a game. He's a really, really good player who had a who camp after he came here and saw Florida and saw the opportunity here. He canceled visits to Arizona, which was a number one seed last year. Uh, visits to Purdue and Tennessee, who were both three seeds last year. He, I mean, so so Gators have a high low point guard uh, post guy combination of fifth year seniors who are who are uh, well established basketball players now. The greatest competition, Adam, for the, on this team is going to be around the perimeter. I already mentioned Myron Jones, but now you got Kowasi Reeves back, who kind of showed up a little bit late in the season. What kind? What's what's he going to do this season? You got Will Richard, who's going to start the year. He's transferred from Belmont. He was a box score stuffer there, twelve point six six rebounds, four assists a game. He's going to start uh, on the injury list. He turned an ankle last week, slipping on a wet spot, but he's going to be a factor later on. Niles Lane. 
really played well late in the season. Uh, Riley Kugel, late arrival freshman. And I think I mentioned Myron Jones already. And Trey Bonham, a transfer. For the, all those guys are in the mix. I don't know how many of them can play or what their minutes are going to be. But I always tell the story. Billy Donovan used to do a thing where he'd talk to his team beforehand. He goes, he'd hand them a piece of paper. He goes, write down how many minutes you're going to play this year. And they'd all write down all right. Then everyone would turn their, their minutes in. And there's 200 minutes in a game. And every year it would add up to over 300 minutes because they all think they're going to play all the time. It's just not the way it's going to be. And that was his way of saying, guys, you know, you're going to have to earn them because they're hard to come by. So that's what the next uh, several weeks will be about. First game is uh, November 7th against Stony Brook. A lot can happen uh, between now and then, but the Todd Golden uh, uh, era, at least the preseason of it, is underway. Moving on to our PAT, which was inspired by the news that I think has been celebrated by just about everybody. Uh, The NFL is finally doing away with the Pro Bowl as a quote-unquote full-contact competitive all-star game. Uh, And they're moving to a a skills challenge of sorts. I think there's going to be some flag football involved. Uh, Whatever it is, it's not going to look like what the Pro Bowl did before, which is good because it was probably the worst event in sports. However, there are still other bad events in sports. So what I wanted to to get from you guys was now that we have gotten rid of arguably uh, public enemy number one in terms of really bad sporting events, what is the next sporting event or exhibition, showcase, etc., a thing that falls under the banner of sports that you think should be headed for the chopping block? I would like to begin my answer by saying that I have this definition of what is a sport and what is not a sport. And this could be a PAT for another time. But frankly, I, I have this very dark belief that if, if there's really not a chance, even a slight chance of death, then it is not a sport. Uh, it is therefore a recreation. For example, I love playing cornhole, but as far as my research goes, uh, I don't even can find the slightest chance of death in cornhole, so therefore not a sport. Uh, the one thing I would love to see go away would be the July 4th hot dog eating contest, et cetera, et cetera. If we can add that to the list of the Dodo Birds uh, that now includes the Pro Bowl, I would be happy with that. He took he took my thing, but... The- you can't tell me after watching that, and I, first of all, I don't watch it. I just see highlights of it. I think you can die doing that. So maybe it's a sport, but it's still you still need to get rid of it. Why the name Joey Chestnut or the Kobayashi Ryuma or like the Star Trek uh, test or something like that? That guy's name is in my head every Fourth of July. It sh- it it should ne- it should never happen. I mean, don't you think if you if you ate eighty hot dogs, you could die? Oh, I don't doubt that. So, yeah, so I, I guess in that sense, it would be sport. But I think that in a world that still has hunger problems, not to mention just the sugar testness of the deal, uh, I would love to see it go away. It doesn't say much about our society and, and gluttony and all that stuff. To you see some guy try to stuff his face with 12,000 hot dogs <laughs> on, the, on, on the 4th of July, for God's sake. So uh, I'm with Sean. He didn't steal my thunder. We're on the same page with this. Although I wouldn't have a problem getting rid of cornhole on TV either. They even have like a camera underneath. You can see like the great camera angle of the beanbag coming through the hole. I'm like, what are we doing here? Got to have it. Got to have it. Next. Next. Give me a law and order rerun. Every time. Bring us home, Scott. Bring us home. You know, it's hard to really follow up those acts there with such hate toward Joy Chestnut and the hot dog eating contest. And we, I mean, Sean and Chris even went as deep as to 
kind of address their societal issues. And I don't, I don't know if I'm really qualified to come at it that hard, but I do not like anything billiard related or playing poker on TV. I've always thought like the guys who are like with the sunglasses on and they're at the poker table and then, you know, they're like got the big cigar. And I mean, you know, they're obviously in front of the TV cameras and there's a lot of interest in this, I guess, or people wouldn't watch it. But I mean, they actually, they're like sitting there and they get their little water bottle and take a sip. I'm thinking, dude, what are you, I mean, you're not sweating or anything. You're not working <laughs> out. You're not doing anything hard. You're like sitting there trying to look cool with your sunglasses and play poker. I just, and why is that on sports shows? Right. I mean, that's more like, I don't know. It's like entertainment, but. But anyway, I, that's just probably always one of those things that instantly, when I click on like one of the channels that shows it, and I see guys playing poker on a sports channel, I instantly start watching the Beverly Hillbillies. Well, we went to a lot of interesting places with Roundtable this week, so thank you guys, as always, for taking us there. Um, again, we are anticipating at this moment a game happening on Sunday. It may not happen. Obviously, stay locked in to FloridaGators.com and follow all of these guys for the latest updates. Uh, but we hope there's football. We hope everybody stays safe, and we hope that we can talk about it next week. So thank you guys very much. All right. Thank you, Adam. When you look at most depth charts across college football, the offensive line is generally littered with upperclassmen in starting roles, so it's rare to see a redshirt freshman at the head of the pack. But that's what Austin Barber is doing for the Gators, as early injuries made him the cliché but necessary next man up. While he could have cowered at the challenge, Barber has thrived, which adds up when you consider how long he's waited for his chance to suit up for the orange and blue. Uh, so I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I've been uh, born and raised there. I'm, to be honest, I've never lived outside of Jacksonville. You know, um, I love it there. That's where, where I grew up. You're you're legit Duval kind of. Give me like, give me your best Duval County. All right. I mean, let me let me. Yeah, gear, gear up for it. <laughs> yeah. Duval. <laughs> Duval. <laughs> I like that. That was just ready to go. I mean, you never yeah. know when you're going to need it, right? So it's always, it's always in the back pocket. It's always Duval. Uh, I take it you were probably a big Jags guy growing up, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just like football a lot, but like I never really had a team. So I kind of started following the Jags, especially the hometown team. You know, mm-hmm. I got to, got to rep them all the time. Yeah. So you said you're a big football guy. When did you get into football? Was it like from birth you were into it? What, what made it such a, a focus for you? Yeah, since birth, to be honest, you know, my brothers, they my brothers played. I have a brother and uh, I had some stepbrothers in the past, but they always played football and they really guided me in, in into football. And probably my first time playing was like six years old, youth league, Pop Warner. And I've never stopped. I've loved it ever since. Now, were you always big or were you, I mean, were you always like the big guy and they're putting you on the line or were you like a skill position player? What was your, what was your football trajectory here? So always, so like always growing up, I was kind of like the, you know, small. I was a little bit smaller, you know. I was I'm the youngest in my family, so like I was smaller. So I was always winning against my brothers and stuff. But when I went to start playing Pop Warner, I had to play in the in the bigger bigger league. When I actually started playing after like my third season, I was I was getting pretty big, and I had to always play up two weight classes above. So like all the old, I was playing with kids that were like three years older than me. So I played a lot of skill positions. I was a quarterback. I was a running back. 
I played some uh, linebacker and stuff like that. So when did when did reality set in that your future in football was probably going to be on the line and uh, not not as a quarterback? Probably freshman year of high school. I was trying to play linebacker like my brother, and uh, in middle school I did for a little bit, and then uh, I hit this growth spur and kind of got pretty big to where I was like, you're either playing D line or O line. Right. So, right. Yeah. How did you decide which side of the ball to get onto? Uh, I really didn't have a choice. You know, I played both. I played both ways, but you know, if I fell in into the O line trap, you know, people say they'd rather play defense and offense. But uh, I fell. I fell into it. I fell in love with it. Probably freshman year, sophomore year is where I really fell in love with O line. Why did you fall in love with O line? That's not something most people probably experience in their life. Why was that the case for you? Uh, just. Just because, you know, it's fun punishing people, you know, the guy in front of me, you know, it's when you're a bigger kid in high school, you just you just get your hands on people and just have fun with it. So I kind of enjoyed that aspect of it. So were your brothers, you said you were the youngest, were they always bigger than you? And then when you hit that spurt, did you jump them or were they still big? No, that's exactly what happened. You know, my brothers played, they played linebacker and then my other brothers played like D-line and receiver. So I hit I hit my growth spurt and they just watched me just get bigger and bigger. You know? <laughs> Probably freshman year, my brother was like six two by freshman year, late freshman year. I was eye to eye with him, and then so forth. So I imagine that did they want to play less when you got bigger than them, or I feel like that was your time to shine. Right? It's like, wait, why don't you want to play now? Let's play. I'm I'm ready. Like let's let's go. Yeah. You know, so my brothers are old. They're, they're pretty older than me. So like when we played in in the front yard, they always loved playing when I was young always mm. so when i finally got bigger you know i tried to play and they were like nah nah you know i don't really want to mess around <laughs> so I, I imagine when you hit that spurt that was when you started getting some attention from schools um what do you remember about the recruiting process was it did you know you're going to have the opportunity to play at this level or, or was that sort of a a process of understanding now this could be a part of your future so my first two years of high school, I was at Uli High School where Derrick Henry played. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I didn't really feel the fit there. You know, I was kind of kind of in a bind. So I transferred to Trinity Christian Academy. And, um, you know, they always say when I first got there, they told me that I was going to get offers and stuff like that. You know, my first offer was uh, Coastal Carolina. And actually, my brother offered me. He was a G like he. Oh, wow. His, yeah. His coaching staff from Charleston Southern, Jamie Chadwell and all them. He was a GA there and uh, he called me up and gave me the news. So, you know, it just felt felt good to get that from him, my mm-hmm. first offer. But, you know, when I first got so backtracks, when I first got to Trinity, I just, you know, I was playing football. You know, I wanted to play, go play the next level, but I just didn't know how far and how big I could make it until I finally started showing out on the field. Mm-hmm. So when did Florida come into the picture and, and how quickly – did you know that was going to be the the place for you? So I've so since birth I've been a Florida fan. You know, I always knew I wanted to play for the for the Gators and run out of the tunnel of the swamp. Me and my dad went to games. Me and my family went to games all the time. And so since it was junior year, I kind of took my first visits there and stuff like that. And they always kind of like they said I was a good player, but they weren't ready to offer me yet. And so I you know I kind of started taking new offers in. Still still like entertain in Florida because I always knew if I got the offer, I was committing. Mm-hmm. And so, so my senior year, I had probably, probably I had a really good season and uh, they offered me 
the day before signing day. Wow. Yeah, so Labor Day, they held it in all the way till then. And they gave me the offer. I called my dad. I called my mom. And an hour later, I was committing and signing the papers. Wow. So at what point did you break it to your brother that you were not taking his offer from Coastal Carolina? You know, he he knew. He knew that. (laughs) I think he knew that I wasn't going to commit to Coastal. You know, he, uh, he gave me my first offer to open it up for me. You know, I always had him in my mind. I love the coaching staff and stuff like that. So, like, but I started picking up some SEC offers, some ACC offers, and uh, he was kind of like, I know you're not going to come here. You know? <laughs> so, he kind of just do your He was realistic yeah. about where they were in the in the, the, the pecking order. Yeah, my brother's yeah. very, very realistic guy, so he didn't hit home for him at all. He, was kinda, <laughs> he kind of was excited for him. He was a Florida fan, too, so that made it a lot better. So, okay, so the dream is to play for the Gators. You sign, you get on campus – what happens next? Who took you under their wing? Who brought you into the program uh, and, and showed you the ropes? Um, man, uh, Richard Garage, you know, he's he's been a guy since day one that has been been like a big brother to me in this in this system and this and how he's been how long he's been here. You know, me and him are, are really close. You know, um, he me and him during during fall camp, my first time first year here, he uh me and him would stay after practice and do drills and stuff like that because he always saw he he always told me he saw something special in me. So that him was probably probably the best thing that could ever happen to me. Hmm. So being that you were a Gator fan, you always wanted to be Gator. Some people commit to a coach, others more commit to a school. You yeah. obviously signed and were recruited by Coach Mullen and that staff. Um, yeah. But I imagine when the change happens, you still wanted to be a Gator. Um, but I'm curious, when the new staff came in, what did they do that got you to buy in? I'm sure everybody has their own point where like it clicked for them. But what was it about the new staff? What was the moment when you were like, okay, I'm on board with what these guys are doing? It was a hard change, you know, I, but I didn't commit for – the, the coaches or anything like that. I knew I knew I wanted to stay here. So even when the new staff came in, I was like, there's no way I can leave. Like there's a there's a shot that I'm gonna there's like a big chance I'm gonna stay here. But what really set it in was when we started doing like our identity phase. They uh they came in and said we're changing the whole program. Like they got they got people that wanted to be here. They got people that that want to be in the system and that's what that's what I needed needed that guidance to have the coaches staff to tell me that we have guys that want to be here and want to win and want to play. So that's what really hit home for me. So you're about halfway or not a little, a little under halfway into the season now, and you're a redshirt freshman. So you've had two years, two staffs, two years. What's been the difference so far? How does it, how does it feel different in terms of within the program, what it's like day to day, or, or does it not feel that much different? Uh, it, it feels different in a sense of there's more people there, more people that are like around. So if I ever need anything, you know, it's like I can just pick up my phone and call five different coaches and have that, have that staff there that just cares, that cares for me to be there. You know, they tell me every day they want, they want me to be great. They can make me, they can mold me into a a very good player. So that really just builds up my confidence. And that's what, and that's what I need the most is people building up my confidence and tell me that I can play and tell me that I can thrive in this league. You know, from a, a tactical standpoint, when you have a new staff, you have a new playbook, all that changes. From the, the I'd say, like the, the layman perspective, you're like, oh, well, 
it's an offensive line. Like they just stand there and they block people, but it's obviously more complicated than that. What have been some of the biggest adjustments in terms of what you're asked to do that differs from what you were doing before? Uh, They, you know, we had guys last year that were old people. We had guys that are in that play and people that left to go, you know, to, to the league and stuff like that. So they asked me to have a bigger role. You know, they, well, really, it was the bigger, bigger role because last year I didn't, you know, as a freshman, they they didn't want me to play. They wanted me to stay and just, mm-hmm. like, learn and learn and learn. But when they got here, when the new staff got here, they wanted me to play that bigger role and tell me to tell me just learn your, learn your steps, learn your technique, learn all the terminology and stuff like that. So it's really just taking that next step and having a bigger role. And part of that, too, is is you have two coaches you can now work with that specialize in the O-line, Coach Sale, Coach Stapleton. What have they brought to the table, and how has that dynamic worked? Because that's something that, when that happened, there were people all across the country that said, wait, they have is that a typo? They have two offensive line coaches? How, yeah. how does that work on a, you know, a day-to-day standpoint? You know, they're, they're, they're two different people, you know. You know, you got one guy that's, that's, that's loud, that's passionate and you have the guy and then you have coach you have another coach that's like when you do something wrong he's there to encourage you and there to pick you up and stuff like that and help you through it you know it's 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 a great dynamic to have Hmm. you know it's just like say say you're getting chewed out by one coach (laughs) you can go to another coach and actually figure it out right unless they're both chewing out which case i don't know what you do at that point yeah you know i kind of just just listen and then do my own way (laughs) And then, and hope they calm down. Um, So you're getting a lot of playing time as a redshirt freshman, which is normal for a lot of positions. But usually on the line, you see guys maybe don't even start until they're in their third, their fourth year. You you see a lot of redshirt seniors that are getting starts. Mm. Um, What has it been like for you having a chance to see this much playing time this early in your career? And and has it been challenging because you're still so young? Uh, yeah, definitely. It's been, it's been challenging, you know, um, you know, last year I took, I took no reps. I took barely little reps and now I got, I pretty much got thrown into the fire, you know, going in from Utah playing seven snaps mm-hmm. to going in Kentucky playing, you know, all the second quarters through the game, throughout the game. So it's, it's a learning experience. You know, I, I, I am still a young player. I'm still learning a lot about it, but it's gonna, but I think playing right now is going to help me build on my career for years to come. You're thinking about that. So you're actually, I think you're the third offensive lineman we've had on this season in term. And the guys we've had on are, are older guys, the Richard garage. It's Osiris Torrance. Why do you think it is that usually more seniority rules on the line? Like, cause again, thinking about this from an every, you know, an every man, you're like, Oh, well, it's not that complicated what they do. Right. Why do you think it is that linemen have to have so much experience before they get that playing time? Because I feel like we are the guys that start the whole play. If you go in there and not block your guy, the whole play is dead. So it's mm-hmm. like you have to have guys that have been through been through games, been through been through practices, been through learning, been through all the ins and outs of seeing film and stuff like that. So the more experience you have, the better you you'll you'll play and understand it. So this sort of rolls right into that. I'm curious. What do you think the biggest misconceptions are about offensive linemen out there? What what would you like to use this platform to uh to put to rest? You know, there's a lot of people that think 
there's a bad play because one person's not blocked, but they don't understand the, the scheme and what play we're running and how we're supposed to run it. And, you know, people just think like you just go out there and put your hands on people and just block. Right. Well, there's guys in front of you too that, that play in this league that played in games that understand how to get off blocks and stuff like that. So it's, it's not just putting your hands on somebody. It's knowing where to put your, knowing, knowing where to put your hands, know, knowing, knowing what linebacker you have to go to, knowing what person you have to block and how you block them and stuff like that. Um, one thing that people always think about with offensive linemen is that, gosh, those guys must love to eat. And I'm guessing you do love to eat. Is that, is that right? Yeah. You know, I can, I can eat, I can eat. You can I eat. Love you them. can eat. Uh, so, okay. I know you guys have it. You have a, a very carefully planned nutritional schedule now, but let's take that away. You've got the keys to the kitchen at the facility. You get to plan the meal. What is the perfect meal that you're serving up over there? So I'm going to think more of for as a line standpoint, not a, not a people person, not trying okay. to please everybody. <laughs> so I'm going to go with it. It's always, I'm a big meat guy. So probably steak, get some uh, mashed potatoes in there. And uh, you know, you always going to have your greens. So probably like green beans or uh, color greens and stuff like that. But, and then you always need a dessert. You always need like mm-hmm. a, a sweet treat after either ice cream or, you know, pie or something like that. So that if, if it was me looking at O lineman, a good steak, some fat, some fat sides and a fat uh, dessert. So how does that compare to the actual things that you guys are told to eat? You know, they always, they, they make us maintain, you know, there's people, there's people on the team that need to gain weight, people that need to lose weight and people that need to maintain. So like there's so much variety and so much options that you can get. So like there's some days, you know, I go in there and pig out and eat, no, they have pizza there. They have fries there and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And there's some days where I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of heavy. I need to go in there and, you know, eat some, you know, eat some salmon, eat some greens and stuff like that. So it's a big dynamic point of where you can either get what you want or get what you need. A um, couple final things for you. We talked earlier in the show about competitive eating. Um, yeah. I'm curious if you were in a competitive eating competition, what is the one food you would choose to scarf down? It can't be hot dogs. They already do that. That's boring. Yeah. What would be your go-to food for an eating contest? It's probably chicken wings. Just bone in chicken wings. Just going after it. I can probably sit there and put as many as you can put in front of me as I can eat. So like, if you add, I think it's an hour, right? The hot dog eating contest is an hour. Yeah. So how many wings could you throw down in an hour? Oof. If I have to sit there in an hour, no, I just, I don't, I can get up and get something like that. Probably an hour, you'll probably eat like 70 or 80. Okay. I got to look yeah. up the record for that. I'm not sure where that is on par yeah. with, uh, with records, but that it's more than I can do. So you'd beat me. Yeah. Um, other than eating, we've established you do enjoy eating. What are some things that you like to do away from football? Um, away from football, you know, I'm a bit, I like watching shows. I started watching some TV shows, uh, House of the Dragons that comes yes. out on HBO. And then uh, I just finished watching the the Jeffrey Dahmer show. I heard that was weird. Yeah, it is. It's 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 different, you know, very <laughs> different. But, you know, I have some roommates. My roommates I like to hang out with a lot. They're on the football team as well. So just that dynamic I have with them, you know, I do pretty much do it. If I'm not in football, I'm hanging out with them. Uh, what other shows? I like your, your current so you're current. You got a House of the Dragon on there. You're keeping up with the latest on Netflix. What about like? What are your favorite shows of all time? Uh, my favorite show of all time is Family Guy, hands down. Okay, I probably watched that thing like 
run through like three times. How I, many I, episodes? There's like how many hundreds of episodes are there of Family yeah. Guy? There's so there's 22 seasons. I wow. think like 12 and everyone. So they just came out with season 22, and it's not, and they're still going. So I'm trying to keep up with that. You were the reason they brought it back, right? You brought yeah. you helped bring it back from the dead. Try. Um, in terms of what you guys have had to go through this week, obviously the game was moved to Sunday. Um, it's kind of unusual. Your schedule has been changed. You also have the hurricane threat. That's very real for a lot of your teammates who have family in these areas. What has it been like going through this throughout the week and trying to get, okay, well, here's what we need to do from a football standpoint, but also, you know, guys, families are, are being threatened by this. How has that been kind of within the locker room? You know, there's some, you know, obviously there's people that is, that's nervous about this, about the storm. And, you know, there's a lot of places that got pretty beat up, pretty hammered. So, like, you know, the coaches have done a great job in saying if you ever need anything, if anybody needs anything, just contact us. We'll help. You know, they gave us they gave us a bunch of resources for today because we have like a it was like a hunker down day. Like this one was supposed to hit. So they gave us a bunch of food, a bunch of snacks bunch of drinks kind of eliminate any of that non like not having food you know college people don't really have food we have the nice facility to eat but that's closed right now so they made sure we have food and stuff what have you guys really focused on this week with eastern washington trying to make sure that you get back on the the winning side of things yeah just just trying to go through and trying to trying to eliminate the mistakes we had from there's a good bit of plays that you know that we beat ourselves you know we've heard it multiple times florida beat florida so we're trying to go in. We've, you know, we're trying. We've had probably our two best practices of the season these two days. You know, bouncing back and uh, just going back to the basics. You know, technique, hands, fundamentals, all that stuff. Trying to, trying to just get those down because you know we didn't have a good performance against Tennessee. You know, it was a heartbreak. But this is a game where I think this is a big bounce back game, and you know, it's just like we need this. We need this win going into the hard SEC stretch. Yeah, no question. Wasson, thank you so much for your time today. We're glad that you are a Gator. You're living out that dream, and good luck to you the rest of the year. Thank you so much for having me. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.